So we're going to start with like a blast through a review on what where we came out of and where we landed. I pull I did pull out my uh, book from our last time of study in the Kings and the Prophets series three where we ended, and it looks to me like our last chapter was First Kings tw- or. No, it wasn't. It was 2 Kings. Let me get the right page here. 2 Kings 14. And then in 2 Chronicles, we got all the way to 25. So that's where the where we ended. And that means for, for anyone who has not been with us up to this point, we have laid down a, quite a lot of history. The other thing that's important to recall is we did not start with David However, all of us know David, right? So we're going to start on our timeline that I've uh, written up here. We are going to start with David just as a kind of a point of reference that's known, right? And then we moved forward with the kings that we see up here. So I want to see if someone in here can help me to explain my chart. Can you get into my mind? Is it possible? (laughs) What has happened here starting with Solomon and why do we have this division? What occurred? There was a split. Do you remember why there was a split? Absolutely. Absol- okay, so there was a, a, a power struggle uh, between basically two a division of the kingdom. There were two in the, in the south, ten in the north, right? The two in the south are who? Benjamin and Judah. But I want to go systemically back a little bit further than just Jeroboam and Rehoboam's struggle where they landed with, with what we now know as these two kingdoms and two leaders. What caused the split to begin with? Yes. I mean, how many of God's laws would you say that you saw Solomon break? And at what point in his tenure as king did he begin to even do that? How long did it take him before he started? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like almost, yeah, maybe three years. You know, it kind of makes me think about the guests in the Garden of Eden is, you know, how long do you think they were in the garden before they you know, made their first committal of sin. We don't know, but um, on this one, we can guess a little bit better, (laughs) but it didn't take long. (laughs) And what's interesting is um, Solomon came, you know, he's a part of a, a kingdom and a teaching, a foundation of knowledge of who God was and that they were God's covenant people. They have been placed upon the land, right? What was the what was the covenant with Israel and their being placed on the land about? Can basic down, but break it down to just the most basic principles. Glorifying God and being the light of the nations through the world. Okay. That was God's desire that they be a light to the nations. That was what fundamentally they were to be. What was the covenant? I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kathy. Okay. He gave them the land. Now, that was the Abrahamic covenant. But what about the covenant which took Israel into their nation and put them on the land? What was that covenant? 
Mosaic Covenant. Okay, very good. Now, in the Mosaic Covenant, what were the principles of that covenant? If you obey, yes, you'd obey the law. And if you obey the law, what? God would bless you. And then isn't that interesting that in this particular covenant, it actually gave the opposite as well, which tells you about this particular covenant, what kind of a covenant was not it? Was it? Conditional. So it was a conditional. If you obey, I will bless you. If you disobey, I will bring cursings upon your land and upon the, the fruit of your womb and so forth, right? And we all see that in Deuteronomy 28 and 29 if you need to go and take a second look for anyone that is not familiar with that. But what happened is we see that very shortly, even David, even though David was a man after God's own heart, was David perfect in the way he followed God? No, he, he failed also. However, the, the, um, the thing about David that, w that we did not study it, but the thing about David that we know is how did God view David? What was his title for David? A man after God's own heart. What was it that made him a man after God's own heart? What does that mean to you when you think of that statement, a man after God's own heart? Go ahead, Janice. Okay. He always, remember when we were uh, going through our kings and prophets in part one, part two, in particular in part one, every time it talked about David, the comparison of every king that followed David was in comparison to David. And what was it about David that, that gave him accolades in the scripture? He had a holy devoted heart unto God. He was fully committed to God and God alone. There was never a division in his heart between other gods, right? Ever. He always followed the Lord. Um, when we see David being, um, uh, what is the right word, challenged or confronted with his sins, what was his response when he would be confronted? That's right, repentance. So the quality here is it's kind of one of those truths uh, that you and I can apply in our lives as well. And that is that, you know, God doesn't expect perfection from us. I don't think that any one of us in this room can ever claim that we don't fail God sometimes and fail one another, right? And, but partic particularly fail God. What God wants, though, is, is people who are wholly committed to him. He is their one and only true love, right? And that then when we do fail, that we will do what? Repent. Okay, so you can, you can have failures in your life and you can trust that God is going to be gracious and compassionate and forgiving, but that that's his greatest desire is that he comes first and he is the one you're committed to. But when it came to King, the, our first subject on our study in the Kings and Prophets series one was Solomon and Solomon, he blew it big time. And it's an amazing thing because when you think about Solomon, what do you think about as far as who he is and what you had known about him before doing the study? He's like the wisest dude in the whole Bible, right? He wrote Ecclesiastes. He wrote Song of Solomon. He wrote, he, he wrote so many, all these things that, were, that showed he had a depth of understanding, almost like a, he was like a psychology major, you know? He, he had kind of experienced a lot in life, and he had also seemed to really 
thought things through. He, he actually was a person who pondered on the, the, the substance of life and, you know, how life unfolds and what's of value in the end and how he experienced life on, on uh, the level of, of humanity, but with the perspective of what was really of value in the eternity. And yet what we see about him is in First um, Kings 11, the, the final statement by God about Solomon was Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Do you remember what his biggest downfall was? I mean, he had a bunch of them, but what was his biggest one? Married women of, with foreign wives. And as a matter of fact, when I asked you earlier, how long did it take him to mess up? His first, his first sin was to take the wife of the daughter of Egypt, right? And God had really specifically told them, don't even go down to Egypt, right? Don't go down there to get your horses. Don't, don't go, basically don't go outside of the realm of my care for you and my provisions for you to get anything, right? And yet they did. And so Solomon did that. And there's all kinds of things that Solomon did. But the, uh, the last statement on Solomon was, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And concerning what we did in our homework this week, we saw, um, and I'm not sure if she took us there, so I want to take you guys there. I want someone to look up Second Chronicles 8.17. And then we did look at this verse, Deuteronomy 23, 7 and 8. Somebody else looked that one up. We're going to start here because our subject matter this morning is about Edom, right? Because our, our major homework was on the book of what? Obadiah. Thank you. <laughs> so we all did Obadiah. I'm so glad we're all in the same book. <laughs> but... We want to start with just a little bit of information about where we started in this kingdom and the mess that pursued after or followed after. We want to look at what happened with Solomon concerning Edom. So we're going to start with the Chronicles record. What do you see in Second Chronicles 8, 17? Who's got that? Okay. And what did he do down there? Do you remember? Yes, he did. He sent, he used Eloth. Do you, does anybody remember what Eloth is geographically and what, what, what took place there? It's right along. It's a port city on the Red Sea. My husband um, wanted to go scuba diving down there. Didn't get to, but we, it was, it was cool. We, we were down there. Anyway, so it's a port city, and so obviously, what do you do with a port? You have ships, right? And what did these ships do? Do you remember that part of the story? What did, what did Solomon do with his ships? He sent them out, and when they went out, they went out conquering, right? And they brought back what? Tons of gold. I mean, tons of it. He was amassing for himself so much wealth because of this port city of Elath. But here's the problem. First of all, what did God say about amassing wealth? Do not do it. <laughs> exactly. You're not supposed to amass wealth for yourself. God had already told him in a, in a vision, because God had appeared to Solomon, that he was going to bless him, right? Do you remember that part of the story? And, and so if, do you think that Solomon needed to pursue that for himself in that way? When he did pursue it, 
um, was it also in disobedience to God in any way? Do you remember about Eloth and Edom? What do we know about Edom and, how, and, and what God had said about the land of Edom? Does anybody remember? Okay, go to the second reference, because you guys looked at it this week in your homework, but you had so many references. I'm, kind of, I'm sure that you and me together, we're going to be struggling through this cross-reference stuff here, but we're going to get through it, I promise. Go to Deuteronomy 23, 7 and 8. It was one of the references Kay had us look at, because she wanted you to have a, po- a point of reference about... Um, about Edom in relationship to the rest of the nations. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Is that all of it? Twenty. No, we did the one where he talks about God giving them. Did I get the wrong one? 2378. Hold on. I'm going to have to look it up. Um, I, know where it, I know where it is in my sheets here. Hold on. You shall, well, it's that one, but it's about... Um, Okay, Deuteronomy 2, 1 to 8. I'm so sorry. Wow, did I get that one wrong? I got to fix my map now. I'm going to fix, I got to fix this right now so that I don't mess it up tonight. Deuteronomy 2, it's Deuteronomy 2, 1 to 8. Okay, thank you. So sorry. This, by the way, was in day three of your homework, and it was in the middle of like 700 cross-references that you looked up, okay? <laughs> and I'm, I'm sorry I took us to the wrong one. Let's do it. Let's do it right now. <laughs> do you have it now? Okay, thanks. <laughs> if your teacher would only get it right, huh? Okay. Yes, Sayer or Seer. Okay, so what that that particular little record or excerpt that we pulled out of, out to look at was to give us insight about the land of Edom and and 
uh, Israel's relationship to it or, or vice versa, Edom's relationship to Israel, right? So what did you learn in there when it comes to um, Solomon who went down to Eloth into the land of Seir and he took for himself the port city and from there began to send out his ships in order to amass wealth for himself, which he wasn't supposed to be doing to begin with, right? So what did it say in there about, about that land? Yeah, Edom belongs to Esau's descendants. Do not, now he said, don't even, don't secure even enough for a foot to set upon, right? So I'm going to kind of shorten that. Um, do not um, take their land. No, yeah. I have given it to them. And that's the Lord speaking. I, the Lord, says I have given it to them. So now that was Deuteronomy 2, 1 to 8. Ha ha, got it right this time. But up here, Solomon, he went to Eloth and sent out ships. So basically, he took, he took a part of the land of Edom and secured it for himself as a king, entered into their land, violating their borders. Now, we, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about that in our um, news media today about, uh, you know, other nations just coming in and just thinking that they have the privilege or the right to just come in upon your land, right? And what we're saying is there are borders for a reason, and there is a security. And what we see here is the principle God laid out concerning that. Borders are there for a reason, and the, the lands are allotted to specific people by a sovereign God, right? And so here we see that um, Solomon had gone to Edom and, and secured for himself part of that. This is part of, this is one of numerous sins that he committed. But concerning Edom and our subject today, we see that God said Edom belongs to Esau's descendant, and that was the Lord speaking. Okay? So that's kind of a good starting place to just, on the timeline of events, to begin to see right away at the beginning of Israel's uh, time frame, we see Solomon having a, uh, a significant uh, breach of what God had, had determined to be for each of these two nations. Now, we're going to go back here in a minute. We're going to go through Esau and try to lay out a, a little bit more insight about who he is and what was given to him and when it was given. But on the timeline for a point of review, I just want to show you here, it, we have it here. We also had an event prior to that we're going to discuss too with David. Okay, so after that, now what I did is I just wrote out a timeline of these names. Now, trust me, these are, this, these are not, it's not a complete list. I kind of omitted some of the smaller kings and such because I just, I don't want to go into too much detail. It gets too overwhelming. None of us are going to remember all these kings in the order anyway. It's, what this is for is m really more for a, a point of reference of flow. Um, you know, and you, we can make our charts and our lists on things, but there's something about the linear 
uh, observation of it that really helps you to kind of keep things better in perspective. And then what we're going to do is as we move along in our cross-referencing with Edom, we're going to be able to plug in the things that we learned about Edom with each of the different kings as they occurred with those kings. And you're going to kind of see what has been the relationship between Israel and Edom. And you'll get to visibly see where it happened and, and um, how the, it may have impacted things relationship-wise. I think that's going to be a good way to do this. So you can see that we started out, as we said, Solomon sinned, 1 Kings 11. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So he gets an he gets a ha- unhappy face. Um, then we moved into the first two kings then of the kingdom, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the north and the south. That's a whole long story we're not going to go into about how all the dynamics of how that worked out. But there was this split. And then you can see here on the red, these are the prophets. Because we're looking at Edom, and, or I mean at uh, Obadiah. Who is Obadiah? He is a prophet. Where did you learn that? In your, in your work this week, in the book of Obadiah, how long is the book of Obadiah, by the way? One little tiny chapter. Aren't you happy? And you thought because it was one tiny little chapter, you had quick homework, right? It's a breeze. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. I was thinking, is this cross-referencing never going to end? Oh, my gosh. All right. But, and I had a conversation yesterday with... Um, one of my students who called and said, I am so confused. What are we doing? Uh, right? Did any of you kind of say, what is the point to what we're looking at here? And how does, you know, what are we supposed to, because we are, we are spending how much time in the book of Obadiah before we move on to Joel? One week. You did it. It's all done. Next week, we move on to Joel, just so you know that. So what does that tell you if you kind of analyze that on a, uh, from the perspective of the subject of kings and prophets, right? Why are we only spending one week on the book of Obadiah? What would, what would, it, what would its purpose be if we're doing it that way? Okay, there's apparently one distinct message because we're supposed to say it again. Yes, just getting a general view. What is the purpose to kings and prophets on the whole? What are we doing in this study? Do you remember that? Because we've talked about this many times. I know we've had studies between, though. Have you forgotten? Basically, what we're doing is kind of getting an overview. What happened with Israel from its beginning all the way to the end? We are looking to see what happened to this nation, and we're just looking at at basically a systematic flow of events. Who and when and how, and what were the cycles what were the repeated sins? What were some of the dynamics? What caused God to take Israel to the place where they landed at the end? What happens to Israel, the nation, at the end of their time as a kingdom? They get removed off the land. Now, Kathy, back to Moses' point to his covenant with the people. What was it? If you... That's right. If you disobey, you will be quickly removed off the land. Well, it wasn't so quickly. God is, God's idea of quickly is fantastic, right? <laughs> You've got 10 more minutes to watch TV. <laughs> Pretty soon you have to go to bed in 200 years, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, I want him for a daddy. Um, okay, so what we see then is this, the purpose of 
kings and prophets is to kind of just get a big flow of Israel. It is not to dig deeply into every single point and dig it all out. If you try to do that, you're going to be so exhausted and frustrated because Kay is not giving us the time to do that. She is not stopping and pondering. Obadiah alone, we could spend four or five weeks on it. There are so many sub, how many subjects came up for you this week? What kind of subjects came up, Laura? I can see your brain is going. Do you remember some of the, what was, what was the problem that was going on in Obadiah with his, with these people, Edom? No, they weren't very nice. Arrogance. Arrogance. And arrogance by definition is pride and insolence, right? And and it talked about them, um, even, even by visuality, they lived where? Up in the high in the clefts of the rock. And so we're going to see here in a minute when we go back and look at David, what happened when David actually conquered them was he was so happy about that, right, that he got a little bit uh, overzealous. And what we what we see with the visuality of what God does in this particular record for us is to show us that they they were haughty and high in spirit, right? And do you guys remember another very strong uh, personality in Scripture that pride took him down? Nebuchadnezzar, Saul. I'm thinking of something a little more spiritual. Spiritual. And the king of Tyre, who is sim- Satan, thank you, bingo. That was where I was thinking. I thought, wow, because, you know, the ultimate sin of all of us. And I've listened to quite a few um, sermons this week while I've been doing other things. I couldn't sit to do homework. I did put on uh, uh, teaching sermons on the subject of Obadiah. And that was one of the things that they kept talking about was how the, how they were so arrogant and prideful and how this is ultimately every human, the plight of every human soul is our pride, that it can creep in and, and trip up every single one of us at any point if we are not constantly on the guard against it. And um, what is the, what do you think is the counterbalance to pride? Humility. Humility. And how do you get to a place of humility? What, what, what is it that you do in order to make sure you don't get prideful? Okay. How do you give God credit? What, do you, what activity takes you to be able to give God credit? There you go. I thought about a verse in Psalm, and I didn't look it up, but there's a Psalm that talks about... Um, how a man is, he was uh, dismayed over how sinful man just seemed to keep getting ahead and, and keep having progress. And yet the righteous kept seeming to always slip and fall. And he said, and I was arrogant in my attitude. And I was, I was basically dismayed by this. He said, until, until I entered into the sanctuary of God. And as I entered in the sanctuary of God, meaning into prayer, and I really began to meditate on who this person was and what their ultimate demise would be because they may be prospering in this life, but where are they going to be in eternity? They're going to be in that lake of fire. Good girl, Becky. That's it. Nail it. That's the prophet back there. All, so the lake of fire. And so he said, 
until I saw his ultimate demise. And then I, I became basically sober-minded about it. I, be, I came to see that the reality is he may win here, but he's eventually going to pay. And, and that demise is not a good thing. And then instead of being haughty and angry at the man and, uh, and um, kind of dismayed by it, he then basically became softened in his heart toward him. So we have a, a people group here called Edom. And the whole subject primarily is about their pride, yes? Were there any other subjects that you saw in Edom that if you wanted to hang on tight and just lay out in this for a while, what else would you be spending time looking at? Did you have any questions in that book? The day of the Lord comes up. Oh, my gosh. Now, we did do some pretty good verses on the day of the Lord. Kay did a really good job to kind of open that up for us. But that, as we know from having done Revelation, it's a two-year course, isn't it? I know. So we, but Sarah, we are, we have now, thanks to Heinz, we now know we are going to do that again. So you hang in there. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting. It's very interesting because the question is, is would, had they accepted the judgment be so severe? Yes. Oh, I actually had said in one of my places in my notes, we would be talking a whole different story had their, had their response been totally different. But the problem is their response was not different. What was it that um, Edom, why was Edom so... Uh, put off by and so begrudging of Jacob. Tell me about about in the world, Israel in the world, particularly in those days. What did the people in the nations around them, well, first of all, what were they supposed to be seeing? Godliness, right? And if they were godly and if they obeyed, what was God going to do? Bless them. And did God bless them on many, especially in the days of Solomon, what was going on? They talk about it in all the commentaries. Israel was at the pinnacle of its heights in glory and grandeur and wealth and, and security and land and all those things. So um, if, they had, if they had followed God, this is what the world was looking at. So can you see from that perspective why the rest of the world, in particular Edom, who they felt they were supposed to have received that blessing from God, they were supposed to be the firstborn with the blessing. So can you see where, as you said, Lisa, it's, it's interesting that, you know, you would think, well, that the offense was against Esau, uh, was against uh, Esau. So I can understand why Esau would be mad, but why are the generations following so mad. Why are they holding on to this grudge? Well, what is the reason? Jealousy, entitlement, envy, right? Greed. So there, in, it, in any of those things, do you see any reference to desire to be close to God, desire to be the children of God, desire to be the ones who worship God, who protect his holy name? Who? No. It's all about I want these things, I want this power, I want this glory, I want this blessing. So they wanted stuff from God. That's what they were wanting. And they saw Israel getting the stuff, and they were 
envious. And so generation by generation, this seed of bitterness got deeply embedded into their hearts. And to this day, there is this bitterness. Some of them don't even know why they're bitter anymore. Now it's just been taught to them by generations and, and by prejudice of, and constant training up of their, of their younger generations to hate Israel. There is this continued hatred that goes on. Oh, interesting. Uh-huh. No, yes. Oh, my goodness. Wow. <laughs> you were trying to trick them into it, were you? <laughs> so, you know, this is... I'm really glad Lisa's here this morning because, see, some of these are, this kind of brings it to present day. It brings it to the reality. This is still going on. We're reading of it right now in Scripture, and we're kind of trying to wrap our minds around the whole thing, but the reality is it's still going on. This envy and this, this hatred and this animosity, and part of, part of it is because they wish they had what Israel had, and particularly they had the blessings. Look at even as Israel's a nation now, they've gone back onto this land. Do you guys remember what Israel was like when they first were put back on the land? What the land was like? It was desolate. It was mosquito-ridden. It was, you know, it was horrible. Swampland is all they had, and they had very little water, any usable water. What has happened in the 70 years they've been there? Wow. How many of you have been to Israel recently? Some of you, yes. What an amazing nation it is. Considering how small the population is and how small the land area is, these people have literally, it looks like some of this place has been there for eons. They have established themselves very, very quickly. It had been truly a land filled with jackals and wild animals, and there was nothing there until Israel was put back on the land. Uh, it's always amazing to me when I hear a Palestinian say, well, that's our land. I'm like, you never established it. You never built a kingdom there. You never ha established a government. You never built anything there. You were Bedouins passing to and fro through the land, but you never secured the land for yourself. You were nomadic through it. But Israel came back on the land and established themselves. What a difference. Amazing. So the jealousy, right? Oh, I'm absolutely, absolutely, which is why God removed them off the land, exactly. Um, and we saw this week, did we not, when we looked at the cross-references of how God talked about the judgment of Israel themselves. Um, but when he was talking to them about judgment and he was speaking to Edom, he was saying to Edom, don't you be arrogant, don't you be scoffing at them, don't you go in and and try to um, basically kill their survivors or take their wealth, p uh, pillage and plunder, right? But, but remember that as they're being judged, don't you be arrogant about it. Do not gloat. That's exactly the wording. Very good. Okay, so let's go through this now that we've kind of talked, we've gotten some boundaries down. What I want you to understand, our subject is to get a big picture. 
and I know it's really hard because we don't get to go into a lot of details, um, but it's, that's not the intention of this, of this particular series. What this is, do, is to do is to kind of be a big survey course that gives you enough in depth to get the feel of what's going on and where they went wrong. Um, and what we're doing now is we are going along and we've hit a certain place. Like I said, we got all the way to um, 2 Chronicles 25 and 2 Kings 14, right? In our homework on series three. So now in series four, we're picking up one of the prophets of that time and we are gonna drop him into our timeline to see where did he fit in the picture of what was going on in Israel, okay? Okay, so we have Jeroboam all the way through then to uh, the last one mentioned, which is Joash, Jehoash, Jehoash, jo Joash. How do you pronounce that? Now, does anybody see something funky on the board when you go down to the kings of the south at the same time frame? Oops. We have another king by the same name, ruling at the same time. As a matter of fact, they were related to one another, bro brother-in-laws. Uh, the king of the, uh, the south married the, the, uh, uh, the daughter of the king up here, who was actually King Ahab's daughter, one of the daughters, and uniting that kingdom under the king of Jehoshaphat. Right? And so by the time you come down here, they end up sharing names because what they do is they have family names, they all share them. <laughs> it gets confusing. There's a couple of others in here where the same thing happens. Even some of the prophets have similar names. It gets very confusing. So when you are studying the kings and the prophets, like we have been doing up to this point, it's really important that you color code kings of the north, kings of the south. There was one of our cross-references, as a matter of fact, that we did this week where I had to go in and three times I finally figured it out and had to mark it so that I could keep them straight, that they were talking, they had the same names, right? But one was the son of Jehoshaphat and another one was the son of whoever the other king was, right? And I had to make sure I get that straight. So just know that when you're working in the kings and prophets. Names can get confused and you can lose track. You can think you're in the king of the south and it turns out you're actually looking at someone from the north. <laughs> so you have to be very careful to mark your, your references in, a, in two distinctive colors for the, for the two kingdoms, okay? I just kind of did one in blue and one in green or something like that. I can't remember now, but I think that's what it was so that I could keep them straight, okay? Now we've got all the way down to Joseph. Now, what we do know is when we ended our, our study in, uh, in part three, we are before the time of the Assyrian captivity. So for point of reference, we know then, number one, Israel is still on her land. Although she's divided, right? Number two, Israel is divided. Is a divided kingdom. Do you remember why? Because of whose sin? Solomon's sin. And we're going to put 1 Kings 11 as your point of reference. You can go back and look at 1 Kings 11. Okay, um, I'm going to write this on here too so you just know it. Number three, this is where we stopped. We stopped 
if you haven't got your books, I was laughing because my friend who called had thrown all her stuff away because she thought we were done. I'm going, what? We're only in part four. We're just starting part four. We got 10 parts to this. Do not throw your notes away. As a matter of fact, last time when we were doing this, I know I told you guys this, but I don't know how many of you thought to do it. I am taking my observation worksheets and I have accumulated them in a separate folder all by themselves together. So that when I go from part one to part two to part three, I still have all the observation worksheets in one binder. And then I can go back and, and like now, this time, when we started part four, I just pull out this binder and I know where we left off. And I can go back and look at all my points. So if you have to, go back into your part one, two, and three, pull out your observation worksheets and put them into a small binder so that you have them in one place. Because we will be continuing, hopefully we'll eventually get through all ten parts on this. And I, it, it will make your life so much easier if you have those all in one spot. Okay, but we stopped at uh, 2 Kings, which means we did 1 Kings, all of it, and now we're in 2 Kings 14, and we got to the end of uh, 2 Chronicles 25, and I do believe that's the end of the book. We did all the way through 2 Chronicles 25. Now we are, we are adding in, we're going to still go back to 2 Kings and do some more work, but we are, I think, done with the Chronicles. Okay, so... Then in the south, we have Rehoboam. Now, the distinction between Re the north and the south spiritually has to do with worship, right? Do you remember about the south? The south is which two kingdoms or which two tribes? Benjamin and Judah. And what is, uh, what is in Judah? Say it again. The temple, thank you, I almost didn't hear it. Jerusalem and the temple. So don't forget that in the south we have the temple of Jerusalem. Now what happened up in the north? Yes, he did. Now this was interesting. Do you guys remember when God appeared to Jeroboam, the promise that he had made to him? Yeah, go ahead, Becky. She's, yeah. I will give you the blessings that I promised to Solomon and that I promised to David. I will give it all to you, and I will bless you if you will follow and be faithful to me. And then the very next paragraph, what does he do? He builds altars, two of them, to ensure what? What was his fear? The people would go back down to the south to do their worshiping. And somehow that when they're going down to the south, their heart would be tied to the temple and to that kingdom. And they would basically abandon him and he would lose power. So it's all about power, keeping the people underneath his control. So he built two of them. Do you remember where? Dan and Bethel. Now this is really interesting. Dan and Bethel. And do you remember why Dan and Bethel? There you go. My little symbol helped a bit, didn't it? <laughs> to the north and to the south of his whole land. That way the people had a place to go. Before they went either direction, they would have a place of worship for them. So he built these, these calves and these altars and the people could worship there. So in doing that, then consistently, all the kings of the north, what was the conclusion of their relationship with God? They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Every single one of the kings of the north, that is God's 
conclusion. And one of the things we, I remember us talking about um, was how do we know if somebody, you know, really had relationship with God or didn't? And all I can say to you is this, that God draws a conclusion for us. He's the one that said they did evil in the eyes of the Lord or they did right in the eyes of, of the Lord. And, you know, I, I don't know that the book is written for the purpose of understanding salvation per se. It's really about kingdoms and what he wanted of this kingdom was their faithfulness. But I certainly think it gives a, a barometer of indication for us. Um, but the bigger picture is to say, as a king over God's kingdom, which he established, which he birthed through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's intention was these people would be his people, and that he would be their God, and that they would faithfully walk with him and obey him, and therefore proclaim his glory to the world. And that is what God wanted from them. And he told uh, Jeroboam, if you will follow me, I will bless you in the same way I promised David and Solomon. And then he did not. So there we see the kings that followed him. Now in the south, what we do is we, we're seeing on again, off again, people who are, some are and some are not. The first one was Rehoboam, and the, there was actually never a statement in there whether he did evil or did not, but what it did do is it talked about how um, he sometimes obeyed God and sometimes he did not. Sometimes it seems like he had wisdom and sometimes he did not. The biggest thing, um, uh, Kathleen kind of brought it up earlier, was this tug of war between honoring what the people were requesting of him, where the initial request in there was that they would go lighter on the taxes and upon the levies that were placed upon all of the, the different tribes to try to support Judah, right? And he wouldn't listen. And instead of listening to the wisdom of the elders and the leaders who told him, you know, if you will just relax your hand, these people will all be faithful to you. They will follow you. But instead, he didn't do that. And so then that, this split actually occurred. So we see then after that, the up and down. I put a question mark on Rehoboam because I'm not certain. It doesn't really give a conclusion. But after that, every single one, there is a conclusion. We see unhappy faces and happy faces and then unhappy faces and then you know we move along so I forgot to put the happy faces on the last two or the unhappy faces I should say unhappy these last two kings all the way up to Amaziah we see that they did not follow the Lord and yet in between we have an Asa and a Jehoshaphat that followed the Lord and and honored him interesting Interesting. Okay, so now let's do this. So that kind of gives you a review of where we left off. It's not a very thorough one, I grant you, but it's enough, I think, to help you see where we're at and where we left off. Do you have any other points or questions that you want to bring up before we move into what you did this week in homework? Everybody's going, no way. <laughs> Please just move on. <laughs> okay. All right. So now what we want to do is we want to go in and we want to look at, um, I think let's start with actually with Obadiah itself. And let's do an outline. Do you remember how many times have I said to you when you do a, 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 a chapter of the, of the Bible, wherever you are at in the Bible, it's great to, when you do your overview of the chapter, get everything marked, right? Mark your key words, figure out kind of what your major theme is that's going on, and then go back and try to get the flow of thought. And how do you get a flow of thought? 
by making paragraphs. Very good, Jan. So she gets a star. <laughs> star for the day, my dear. Just one for the course. You did good. Okay, so let's start with Obadiah in that regard. Now, what did we see about Obadiah? As you marked Obadiah, the, the major things, you, you were told to mark Edom, right? Um, certainly, you want to mark the Lord. And then there were a couple of other things that came up in there. We talked about it earlier. What were, what were some of the other things that were going on in here, other subjects? The day of the Lord comes up. And even though it's only mentioned really a, a couple of times, um, it seems to have a heavy presence, does it not? Because it's mentioned and then everything else is based off of that particular pivotal point in time, right? Um, when you are marking your observation worksheets, you should always look for times of reference. You want to mark your, especially when you're doing historical books, you want to mark your geographical locations in a specific way. Get them, I like to double underline them in green, whatever you're doing to mark them so that they pop out at you. Why would that be of importance to you when you're doing a, a study in a historical book? Yeah, helps you. One of the reasons she wants you to have a map, pull out the map and look to see where things are positionally. Sometimes I remember when we were doing some of these in the earlier series, there were times when I didn't, until I got the map out and saw where things were and what was going on, it was, oh, I see. He's got enemies to the north and to the south, and he's sandwiched in between. So that's why he went up here and made an ally and then was able to conquer. But until you see it on a map, you aren't going to always see it. So don't forget to do that. Even, even in a book like Obadiah, it's excellent uh, for you to you know, exercise that skill. Okay, so tell me, what was the overall message then in the book of Obadiah? Did anybody title their chapter on their your at-a-glance chart? Judgment on Edom, exactly. Okay, Obadiah's vision is all about judgment on Edom. Now that's just one way of titling it. There's a lot of possibilities also besides that. Um, any other thoughts? There, okay, yes, and that's, that is a good point that gets brought up as we move along. On the whole though, Jan, is the book about all nations or is it about Edom? Edom, okay. Okay, good. Actually, it's very interesting because Kay had us break this down into just three, and I broke it down in, uh, or she had us break it down into one, two, well, three, and I ended up breaking it down into four because I separated out that particular statement in, in 15 and 16 as a distinct message in the flow of what he's saying here because I think that was an important thing. So we do see that even though Edom is the central message that God is going to judge Edom, and that's what the point to this particular prophecy is, however, we do see he also makes sure to understand, you to understand that all the nations are going to have a day of judgment as well. It's not just Edom, right? Um, I think sometimes... In the mind of humanity, you know, everything's about, well, that's not fair, right? So does Obadiah make it clear to you that God's fair? 
Yes, he is, even in judgment, so don't forget that. <laughs> right? Good message. Another, another great way of looking at the book. Okay, so any other titles? Okay, that's good. Destruction and annihilation are, are, are particularly in destruction. We see that those are also key words in here. We see the fact that they're going to be ransacked, they're going to be overpowered. There's all those kinds of words that are used, rooted up, right? Okay, so um, I had titled mine that Eden will be cut off forever out of verse 10. Same thing. You will be covered with shame, and you will be cut off forever. And I, the reason I kind of picked that one in my thinking was I was thinking back to the covenant promise that, it, you know, God's people are always blessed. If they, if they will obey him, he blesses. And even, even if though Edom was not in the covenant of Israel, does the principle hold true to every nation who follows God? Will God bless a nation, even if they're not under quote, the covenant, the, the covenant of law, w was he blessing the nations in the days of, of these kings if they were following God? Yes. If they were friends to God, as a matter of fact, one of the points that he had us go back and look at was in um, Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, right? And in Genesis 12, what did God say to Abraham when he was giving him these promises? What did he say about the peoples around him, the other nations. Yeah. Right. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. So in the world on the whole, what is your attitude? She asked us this question. What is your attitude about Israel? That's right. We love Israel. Hallelujah. <laughs> exactly. And I can tell you, even though probably on the whole in this group, we are all in one accord on that, there are people, even in the church realm, that are not. They think that um, Israel is, is a lost cause, that they have violated all these things against God, and they have written them off, and the church is now in a place of substitution, and I know that, that, that we in precept and we in this group have talked about this so many times, we know that's not true that God's promises to Israel will be accomplished. He says, as long as the stars are in the sky and as long as the seasons come and go, right, as long as the, the ocean currents can retain themselves, and as long as the stars are in the heaven, are they? Is the sun still rising and setting? Yes. Jeremiah says, I will do these things for Israel. And so the promises he made to Israel are absolute. Romans says that God's promises are irrevocable and that he will fulfill them. So for you and I to actually come at our study that we're doing here with the perspective of understanding, yes, God loves the nations. He loves all the nations. But God also judges anyone who does not honor his word. Now, in, in the realm of Edom, what do we see was the problem with the with this nation on the whole about their attitude toward Israel and uh, their attitude towards the God of Israel. Well, way back when they were moving out from Egypt, 
refused to let the uh, Israel that's right okay so let's do this let well maybe mm, I'm not sure where to go with this whether I should continue down that path or go back to this let I'm I'm gonna hold us on that thought because I took us there and I'm sorry um I want to I want to develop this more so we have this background information on him. But let's finish up the Obadiah vision first. Let's get it outlined because the outline on it will help you. Uh, I think uh, just get your anchor on your book of Obadiah first. Let's go back there. Let's break this down into paragraphs. So we know that it's all about the judgment of, of on Edom uh, that they will be cut off forever. All right, and we know then that verses 1 to 9 is our first paragraph. Kay has it kind of marked for us through the bold printing in the, on the observation worksheets where she see the, the next bold print is verse 10. So you know 9 is the end of your first paragraph. So you tell me, what did you see in verses 1 to 9 on the whole of this message? If God is going to cut them off forever, what, does, God, does God tell us how he's going to do that? Isn't that interesting? He's going to take their, their allies. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm confused. What is an ally? Uh, your friend. That's interesting. So Edom's friends are going to turn against Edom. How is that going to happen? What, what do you think is going to make them turn against their own allies? What does the scripture tell us? Pardon? Yes, they too. Yes, they will, Sarah. That's right. Eventually, God is going to judge anyway. So, in fact, he's going to judge them because of the very fact that they betrayed an ally. You know, one of, one of the things that we learned, we just came out of covenant, right? What is one of the other terms for covenant? Alliance, right? A covenant is an alliance. And if you're in an alliance, you're in a covenant. And if you're in a covenant, who holds you responsible for that? What is the seriousness of covenant breaking? Death. Yeah, potentially death. So do you think if an ally of a, of a person, even in the human level, is God going to hold them accountable for breaking covenant? Whose message is covenant? Who, who is the author of that subject of covenant? God is. He, and he covet, as a matter of fact, you, I, I just want to put the, it in your mind in this way. Covenant is actually a holy article of God. If you think of it in the perspective of the spiritual realm, just like in um, in their temple worship, they had these different articles that they used. Like they had the lamp, they had the the uh, the laver, they had the the offerings, and all these different things. They even had. Uh, clothing that they were wore everything was a holy article and there was a certain way they would handle them and touch them and and treat them right and only certain people on certain days and in a certain way and everything one of the art, holy articles we learned we, when we did Leviticus was that blood is a holy article and therefore it was only reserved for the altar that's why anytime you touched blood you became defiled because it was a holy article, and God wanted you to recognize blood relates to relationship with God, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So when it comes to holy articles, another holy article, I would, I would go so far as to say covenant is a holy article unto the Lord. The concept of covenant is so precious to him that when you violate it and you break it, he will judge. 
And so he holds you responsible for that. So in the case of these friends, these uh, allies, right, we use that term really loosely, um, when these uh, allies are, are eventually going to go against Edom to judge Edom, uh, God's going to also hold them accountable for it. And yet, who is it ultimately that prompts these allies to go against Edom? Yes. Tell me the verse. Where do you see the verse where it says, who brings them down? That's right. The Lord will bring Edom down. Because even though he uses those individuals, the, the systemic working behind it, the spiritual uh, uh, movement of God is in the hearts of these people, these unbelieving men, these uh, Gentile nations who don't know God, God motivates them to go and to operate in a certain way, right? And then later he holds them accountable for it. What does that tell you about that process that God goes through? Does he force anyone to actually commit a sin? No, he does not. What does that tell you about their heart? They were already unhappy. Yes, there you go. <laughs> That's a good way to do it, Lisa. You are so good. They are unhappy faces. So to begin with, they do not have a faithfulness or an, a, a, um, an allegiance to God. And because they, their character is quite flawed, they are easily swayed. So when God puts it or impresses it upon their heart to do these things, they're, they're quick to do it. And it's no problem for them. As a matter of fact... Are there times in your life that you have something come into your mind where you're being tempted to do something wrong? Is temptation only relegated to the unsaved world? Does temptation come upon us? Now, what does God tell us that we are to do when temptation comes our way? To resist it, to flee from evil, right? So what I'm trying to say to you here is, even though God put it on their hearts, on these, these uh, quote, allies, to come against Edom and to judge them, God did so, but he only had to, all he had to do was prompt them by the, by the suggestion of it. Their evil hearts took them to do the deed. And then God will judge them for that because they're still responsible for the choices they make. You and I will be tempted by Satan and by the world and sometimes by our own flesh, right, by our own mind. And, and God will hold us accountable for what, how we respond to that. Fleeing from evil is required of God's people. There you go. Excellent example of that. Because he loved the Lord. See, there's a man who walked with the Lord all the days of his life, and he was a man after God's own heart for that reason. I love that. Very good example. Okay. So let's put up here. The Lord will bring... I wanted to clarify that because when you say the Lord will bring Edom down and you say the Lord is the one who put it in the hearts of these allies of Edom to come against them, it could sound like God is coercing or that God is forcing, and that is not true. But simply God uses vessels who are willing, and he uses evil men to, to bring judgment. He did the same thing with Babylon. He used evil men to come against Israel to judge Israel, and then he judged Babylon. And Syria, he judges them all, exactly, through the generations, any kingdom. But, and we see him do this over and over in Scripture where he brings a kingdom against Israel, 
Not that God is forcing them. All he has to do is give them opportunity and temptation, right? Now, he doesn't send temptation, but he can bring the thoughts and he can, he can maneuver these circumstances. And the evil hearts of men, they run with it. Doesn't take much, right? But if they loved the Lord, they would not. So they have a choice. He also uses nations to bless Israel. Yes, he does. Right. Isn't that an amazing story? That's a, that's a flip side of it, that Cyrus, who didn't even know God, yet Cyrus is the one who let Israel go back and rebuild. And so he can use the, an unbeliever to also bless. Yes. Okay. So I just had to slip that in because this statement right here to me, for a person who doesn't have enough foundation of understanding God and God's ways, can say, ooh, it sounds like God is coercing or causing someone to commit a sin. No, God does not tempt man, and God does not cause man to sin. This is all freedom of choice by the man. However, it's easy to find the weak vessel and use them, right? Okay, so one to nine to bring about God's plan. Okay, 10 to 14 then is that there's an answer in here as to why. Edom is going to be cut off forever. And what is it that they're being cut off for? Ultimately, what is it that they've done? I'm sorry, Jan, say that again. That's right. Because of your violence to your brother Jacob, you will be put to shame and you will be cut off forever. Um, we saw earlier in the text... That, they, that there was an arrogance about them. And even though arrogance was a, a problem in the core of who they were as a people group, um, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the reasons why they got there in that place. But what we know is that the arrogance led them to, to commit a specific action that God is especially alert to. This is very interesting. Their arrogance could cause them to go a lot of, against a lot of people on the earth. A lot of nations around them could be affected by their arrogance and by their haughtiness. And as a matter of fact, if you do a lot more research, which we didn't have time to do, we barely got through what we did, right? But think about how many other nations they had also plundered and attacked. And it talked about one of them that they would go out and attack and collect all their goods and their wares. And then they retreat to the cleft of their rocks where they had a, 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 basically a fortress. Do you guys know what, where one of the major ones is for uh, Edom? Petra. How many of you know about Petra? Yeah? Petra being that place where who's going to be there one day for hiding? The Jews in the end time. Israel will run to the place at Basra, it says, and God will protect them there in the wilderness for a time, times, and half a time. And Basra is in, is in Edom. And Basra is the place called Petra. If you look at it online, Google it. It's beautiful. Beautiful. But, and they, they built these beautiful places in the, in the stone of the rock of the mountains, and they were dwelling places for them. But the, the security of them was that they had very narrow passages, and, and at one point, anyway, they could really only get one horse and one man through the passage at a time, which gave them total security. If anybody tried to come against them and attack them, they could easily kill them, right? They could easily um, thwart them off. So they became very arrogant. So we see the Lord is going to bring Edom down. And why? Because of their 
Uh-huh. Because of their violence against their brother. And I think it's interesting that they say it that way rather than calling Israel by name. Now, back to what I just said then. Since, since um, Edom also attacked others, what is the deal then about God being so concerned about their brother? Who is their brother? And Jacob. So that's where we went in and we had to go through a list on the history of Esau and of Edom to try to build our understanding, our background knowledge of who these people were and why God was so concerned about them. You tell me, why is God concerned about, I about Israel? He loves them. And there's even a, a stronger reason. Covenant. God made a covenant. He called them out, designed them for a specific purpose, set them on a, pl a plan of action. And what's really cool is when you, when you pull in all the other pieces of knowledge from all the works that we've done, one of the most important things is, is God, uh, Israel is really a tool in the hand of God. And Israel's, one of their biggest designs, purposes, is that they bring God glory. And so when they failed in that, God did have to kick them off the land. We're going to see that as we move on further in this series. But the reason he had to kick them off the land is because, because they defamed his holy name. So do you remember when we did Ezekiel? What was the key verse that just kept coming over? And in that day I will do what? I will vindicate my holy name, which you profaned among the nations. So God is using Israel. Israel's purpose is to bring the glory to God. Every time we see an, uh, a marker like this where it says because of their violence against their brother, what God is doing is if he allows Israel to be trodden down by the nations of the world and he does not intervene, then what does that do to his glory? It diminishes it. So, in essence, God is not just protecting Israel because of Israel and their people. As a matter of fact, he says that. I did not choose you because you were better or holier or greater than anyone else in the world, right? But I chose you to show myself to the world. As I work through you, as I perform the miracles I will do through you, as I bless you, as you walk with me, and the world sees the benefit of walking with God, then uh, my glory is brought to me. I bring glory to my name. And one day, because you've you have profaned my name in all these things that they've done here, and you can see all these unhappy faces, all of these in the north were, were evil kings. And in the south, at this point, we've only got two that are happy faces, right? Jehoshaphat and um, uh, Asa, that, right? Asa was before. And Asa, you know, all of these men were weak, but God wants them to bring him glory. And that's where he's heading. So because of their violence against their brother, the Lord is going to bring Edom down. And he's going to protect Israel because of what? His holy name. That's not in the text, but that is the essence of what's going on there. Okay, so now the next, I separated this one out, and Kay had not done it that way, so I'm sorry I'm kind of adding a little bit to this, but I felt like, as Jan noted it earlier, I saw it as well as a, as a distinctive paragraph and a distinctive uh, uh, point that's being made here. Um, what do you see in 15 and 16? 
first of all, what major event is mentioned? The day of the Lord. So when you see the day of the Lord, you should, first of all, mark it in a distinctive way. But since it says the day of the Lord, you could also put a clock on it because that's actually a time reference, right? What does that tell you uh, in reference to what's going on in the flow of this that's happened now in verse 15? It's a future thing, right? So do you remember where she had um, a division? Oh, I don't have a place. I don't have a place to write it. It, but she had a place on your observate, your at-a-glance charts, a place for you to do um, segment divisions for the chapter, believe it or not, right? So in this chapter, 1 through 14 seems to be relating to what kind of judgment? Judgment that occurs when? At that time in history. There's going to be some kind of active judgment that God is going to be doing in that moment and progressively through the years. It looks like there's, from the cross-references that we looked at, that there was sometimes, there was, there was room in there for God to say of them, even if you rebuild, I will still tear you back down, right? Um, but starting in verse 15, there's a distinction there, and it speaks about the day of the Lord. Now, in that day, that speaks of something in the future, that's a distinctive time in future. And once you do a um, revelation course, you come to learn that that little phrase in the day of the Lord is really a significant time factor. It's, it's an um, indicator for you that you know that's speaking of a specific time of a day of the Lord. So if you had to give a segment division and divide verses 1 through 14 and then 15 to 21, what would you title that segment division? Well, yeah, but what would be your, your division about judgment? Yeah, present and future. That's exactly right. The present judgment, meaning the short-term fulfillment of what Obadiah is saying here, but there's also a long-term fulfillment that's yet to come. There's something that's going on that God will handle in the moment, in the here and now, because he's going to deal with these immediately with some of these people and the things that they have done, but yet there's going to be a long-term uh, uh, fulfillment, okay? We'll look at some of those verses in a minute. So you, if you wanted to give yourself a division, a segment division, you could divide it right here. Present fulfillment or present judgment, and then a future judgment. In 15 and 16, what do you see about the day of the Lord? Yeah, it draws near. I love that. And then I put it in capitals for all nations in order to catch my eyes on that. The fact that he starts out then, if you have another segment division here, don't you? What is the first 14 verses about relating to? Only about Edom, right? And now, and, or Esau, that's right. And starting in verse 15 all the way to the end, he's talking about something bigger, right? What's he talking about? All the nations. So that would be another segment division. This book is amazing. Considering it's so tiny, it's one chapter, there is a lot of possibilities going on here. There are some books I've done I couldn't find segment divisions on. But this one little tiny chapter, I've already found two segment divisions. They do happen to break in the same place, but on two different subjects. One on judgment and one on who's being judged. 
First, it's just about Edom, and then it's about all the nations. The first one has to do with the present uh, judgment that God is going to handle with Edom itself, and then later in the future, there's going to be a, a, a end-time judgment that's going to God's going to deal with all the nations of the earth. That's pretty cool. Okay, 15 and 16, the day the Lord draws near for all the nations, and now 17 to 21. This one's really cool. What's going on here? You see in verse 17, it says, but, correct? How many of you marked your geographical references? Yay, good job for the three or four that did. <laughs> the rest of you, please mark them. Um, so there's a whole lot of, there's a kind of a whole lot of activity going on here at the end with geographical locations. But it kind of all ties into one point. What is that? Israel is going to be restored. There's going to be a restoration of, of Israel upon its land. And at the culmination of that, what happens? When Israel, because now we're talking about a future event, right? Something that adds at a specific point in history at the, the day of the Lord. And God says, and I'm going to take these people and put them here and I'm going to take these people and put them here and these people are going to possess this and these people are going to possess this and ta-da the kingdom will be the Lord's so what is the ultimate goal then of the day of the Lord that God will have his kingdom that God himself will take possession who do we know that's coming back to have a kingdom Jesus, does that kind of give you a, a boundary right here at this point? What's being, uh, one of the sermons that I listened to this week online, I got tickled because that, that what caught me, my attention when I was, you know, surfing through to pick something out to listen to was, it says Jesus and Obadiah. How many of you saw Jesus and Obadiah? I didn't until 21, and when I figured it out, I went, Oh, there's Jesus. <laughs> I didn't dawn on me. But quite honestly, would you say on the whole Obadiah, the writing of Obadiah and what's going on with Obadiah and how God is going to deal with not only Edom, but uh, not with Obadiah, with Edom, how God is going to deal with Edom. And then he, and it talks about him dealing with the nations, but it, ultimately it all is culminating in Jesus's return and the kingdom that he is going to establish, right? So at the end in verse 17 to 21, there's all these references to geographical locations and Israel getting back its land, but there's never really a clear bullet point about them. But what it does do is it draws you in verse um, uh, 21 to the fact that then the kingdom will be the Lord's. I know. If you've studied... Um, Prophecy. If you've not studied prophecy, you may not catch it. But yes, for those of us who have done Revelation, this was an easy. But it was kind of fun, wasn't it? How many of you um, felt like when you got into this, you're like, oh, we should have studied this when we were doing Revelation. This is really cool, right? Because it kind of gives you some good insights about what God is doing at that time. The kingdom, I'm going to do it this way, will be the Lord's. Did you notice the titles of God in this particular book? How God titles himself. The Lord, right? Or the, the Lord, uh, there was one I think it said the Lord your God, right? So what is that about? 
And he says it declares the Lord. Did you see in verse 4, all capital letters, the Lord? What is that telling us? Yeah, it's, it's all about his sovereignty, isn't it? It's about the God Almighty, the one who is the sovereign God, but it's also, by the way, the covenant God. It's the God of covenant, that title. So he's covenant and he's sovereign. It's really cool the way that they blended this together. And so in the context of this book, that would be a good word if you have time to go back and look up. Look up the, the title, L-O-R-D, all capital letters. Do it on your computer. Make it easy for yourself. <clears throat> because titles that are given to us of God and how they're used in each context is significant to the message that's going on in there. <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> so now we've got a pretty good outline. Judgment on Edom, they will be cut off forever. The Lord will bring Edom down. It's the Lord that's going to do it. It's because of their violence against their brother. And, and uh, there is an additional, I love the fact that we've just done covenant because this is really helpful for us to fall back into. When you're thinking about the relationship of Esau and Jacob and this, this brotherly love that should be there between the two of them, what is going on between these two brothers? What in the world happened? What caused this breakdown that Esau and the descendants that followed caused so much distress that they cannot love their brother or their, their relatives, so to speak? And throughout all the texts, he keeps referring to them as your brother, your brother. He makes sure that you catch that title. So let's go back now. We can look at these references that you did. I think it was day three. Um, Hold on, let me pull mine out, too. You started in day one, actually. You started with Edom, a list on just Edom itself in day one. Tell me what you learned about Edom in day one. Start there, because that was, that was your first homework. We aren't going to necessarily write a whole lot down, but I do want to... What did the scripture, Obadiah, tell you about Edom? Okay. Is that in, which verse are you in? Okay. Yes. Okay. Edom is, is uh, to his brother Jacob. Okay, Edom. So we're going to put on here, Edom, brother, is Jacob, meaning Israel. And that's in verse 10 of Obadiah. Okay. That's a really big uh, piece of this picture of trying to lay a foundation of understanding the relationship between Israel and Edom as nations, is to understand that systemically the, 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 the relationship is that they started out brothers before they became full nations, okay? Anything else that you saw in your first list? Um, is that in, in uh, Obadiah? No, okay. Hold on. We'll go to the cross-references in a second. Yes. Hold tight. <laughs> You're so good. You're ahead of me. You're fast. Any other points when you did your list? How big was your list? Did you have a pretty good hefty list? What were some of the various names for Esau that were you, or for Edom that were used in there? We see in verse 1 it's called Edom, Right? What is he called in verse 6? 
Esau. What's he called in verse 9? Teman. What about in verse 8? This is interesting because it's a switch, sort of. It's more about location than it is the mountains of Esau. Isn't that interesting? So what does that kind of tell you about Esau right there? As a, as a person, he has a name, and, he's, and he's, he's called Edom, and he's called Esau. So you unite. What you do in that, in that tiny little list that you make is you unite a people group with the, uh, with the root of who they came from, which was Esau, right? And then you go to Teman, and the same thing. Now, what is Teman? A city, okay? So, and it's actually kind of like a geographical point of reference for a person to be able to go, and you can look on a map, you can see where it was, and you go, oh, okay, so this Edom, who was Esau, is connected to Teman. Now I see on a map right where we're at, okay? Can you kind of see how God is doing this? It's great the way he did this. And then he, call, he says, the mountain of Esau. So what does that tell you? There's a mountain. Okay. You know what I thought was interesting was I, I got to thinking about Daniel. Do you remember in, in the vision to Daniel, God talks about a statue, right? And, and each of the pieces of the statue represented a different kingdom. But at the end of it, there was a, a great stone made without hands. And that stone does what to the statue? It crushes the whole thing, right? And then what happens to the stone? It becomes a great mountain, and it fills what? The whole earth. Isn't that amazing? That was in Daniel. I remember that. So that, to me, when I saw that he speaks about Esau as being a mountain, I equated that to, to uh, being pictorial, a picture of, of a kingdom. So Esau was a kingdom of his own, a nation of his own. Okay, and then we see in verse 18. The house of Esau. Now, how, how often have we heard about the house of something in our study so far? Right? What does that tell you about the house of? What does that kind of convey? What message? Yes, them and their descendants, and, okay, generation by generation, tribe, nation, kingdom, leadership, or kings even, the house of David, they do this or this or this, right? And it talks about the lineage then, so you can kind of pull all that in whenever they say the house of something. And I thought about, since we've already done all this other work in these first three parts of Kings and Prophets, Often we see about this is the house of the, remember like the whole house got destroyed, for instance. Remember when Basha, the whole house of Basha is destroyed because of their sin. And then later Omri, the same thing, the whole house of Omri is destroyed. And, so, and those were some things that we looked at. And some of these people only, only were on the map, and I didn't put them all in here, but some of them were only on there like two days. One of them, remember, he got, he got inaugurated and killed immediately, you know, burned up or something, if I remember right in a fire. Okay, so now Edom's brother, we see, let's put some of these names up here again. Oops, wrong sheet. You guys are going to have to help me with this. Let's see. Yeah, I just want to get them so that you have the list here. Edom, so we call Edom in verse 1. We see Esau in verse 6. 
We see Teman, which is a city, in verse 9. Then we see the mountain of Esau in verse 8. And then the house of Esau in verse 18. And, and some of those are repeated in other verses, but, but at least that, therefore, you get a little, a little indication of how in the book of Obadiah he is re made reference to so that we get a bigger picture of what's going on. Okay, now let's go back and look at some of these on day three, these references, because they were really good. Hopefully, ooh, man, we're running out of time. Okay, so we're going to have to do this fast. And I'm, I'm going to skip writing them, and you're going to just help me get through it so we can kind of cover through. What did we see in Genesis 25 about Esau? What did you learn there? The, okay, this is the storyline of his birth. And what we see is he and his brother, Jacob and Esau, are born. Um, and what do we know about their birth? Okay. Because they were twins, right? So they were twins, and one came first. And what was Rachel's concern about her pregnancy with them? They were already fighting in the womb. Now, this is very interesting to me because um, God came back to her and gave her a prophetic word about them, and I want to cover that with you. We see in Romans, you looked at this verse in Romans, it's in 9, 10 to 13, right? And in 10 to 13, what do you learn about God uh, as far as in reference to his choosing of these two brothers? Because remember, what was the, the, what was the prophesied word concerning Jacob and Esau? The older will serve the younger. So it's going to be that Jacob, God's foretold that Jacob would be the one that would rule and Esau would be his servant, right? And so in the, in the choosing of that, then Kay had us look in Romans 9, verses 10 to 13. And what did we see in the book of Romans about that? Who's doing Romans right now? A couple of you guys are, right? Okay, so what do you see? In, are you up, up this far in the book yet in Romans 9? Oh, okay. Darn. Oh, I'm so sorry, Lisa. I'm going to, I'm going to bust your bubble and tell you all about it. So you'll have a heads up. Okay. So tell me, what do we see in, in uh, Romans nine? The next segment division starts in nine and uh, nine is about what? What did we learn in there? It's God's purpose. It's, and he, he's got a, in other words, he's got a plan in this, and it's, there's a design purpose, right? What do you think God's ultimate design purpose about everything is? That they would all come into belief, that God's desire is that none should perish, no, not one, right? How do we come into belief? Through what? Through the, through the seed who is Jesus. Because just like Abraham, who believed God, that's how we all come into faith, right? Without faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Okay, so in Romans 9, God's sovereign choice stands. So when we look back here in Genesis 25 and we see that God foretold, what we're looking at then is the, the, uh, the sovereign choice of God over who is going to do what in, in life, basically, right? Now, here's the question to, oh, I wish we had more time. Um, if God chooses, 
does that mean God manipulates humanity or, or the mind of man? D- does that mean that some are pre-chosen to not and some are pre-chosen to? Does God choose who gets saved and who doesn't and it's all predetermined before you even make a decision? He actually kind of makes that mention here that even before they had done anything good or bad, God made a choice, right? What is his message in that? Is it about whether they did something good or bad, or, or is the message about that God knew something beforehand? What do you think? His foreknowledge. This is about God's omniscient foreknowledge. Does God know the beginning before the end? I thought about a verse in Psalm 139. You guys are probably really familiar with this. I love that passage, don't you? How God, it says in there, God does what? with the child in the womb. Yes. He knit them together in their mother's womb. He knows their heart. He knows their life before even one word is on their lips, before one day is lived out. God knows it all. Is that because God is forcing it, or is that because God knows it? He knows it. It's all So when God chooses... I love this. God's sovereign choice stands because God foreknows. And I'm just going to put on here Psalm 139, and you guys can pick up on the rest of that. You know kind of the storyline there. But I just think that one is so, so, immediate, uh, is so important for you to grab hold of, that when, when you open up with the book of, of, of Genesis and you see that storyline of J- Jacob and Esau, the choosing of, of Jacob, the next thing we learned was um, he said in Romans 9, 10 to 13 also about the two what does he say about them? Jacob, I loved, and Esau, I hated. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, knowing what you know about God. Now, here's, here's where your inductive study skills come in great. Put in your, your pillars of tr- absolute truth. Do you know that God loves all men? Yes. Does God, does God desire that all men be saved? Yes, okay. But we also know there's a flip side of that coin, and that is the free will of man and their choice and their responsibility in responding, right? There's tons of scriptures that talk about that. Men must respond to the gospel, and they must believe because Abraham believed God, then it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Okay, so with that all said, when he says, I, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, what is, he, what is he speaking of there? What was the subject matter around? Um, no. It was about God's choosing of a nation. Did you all notice that? It was about the covenant that he made with Israel and the choosing of a nation. And he says, and God's plan stands. Obadiah closes with what statement? What was our closing statement? The kingdom will be the Lord. So when God chose Jacob, Jacob I loved, meaning through Jacob, what was God going to bring about? The kingdom. And in that regard, God loves it. This is not about an emotional kind of love. I love you and I hate you. That, does that even sound like God? 
So just reject it right off the top. I mean, it doesn't take a, a, a lot for you and I to know just within the, our gut that that's a wrong interpretation. And that's why when we think on it, we struggle with it. We go, oh, this does not sound right. I don't like what I'm hearing here. This makes me feel really uncomfortable because it's wrong. God doesn't hate anybody, and he doesn't love someone over another. What he does, though, is because God is sovereign, and his sovereign choice will stand because he's omniscient and he knows the end from the beginning. But there's another verse that came to my mind, and that was in Hebrews 12. Um, well, 11 also, but, but in 12 where he says, or no, it's Hebrews 4. God is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Nothing is hidden from his sight. So when he has knit you together in your mother's womb, and he foreknows because he's all-knowing, you're all the days of your life. When he looks upon your life and he examines your heart, even before one day begins, what has he already determined about you? Not that he's caused it, but that he knows it. What does he know about your heart even before one day happens? Whether you will love him or whether you will not, whether you will accept him or whether you will reject him. So does that now make sense to you why God loved Jacob and hated Esau and why he chose Jacob over Esau from the before the womb why he knew from in the womb that these were two nations and they were fighting against one another he's the sovereign God he knows he's seen it all before it even happens that is an amazing truth and if you and I can even grab hold of we're done with our time and I didn't get to finish this but if we can grab hold of just that one thought about Edom and about how God is, is working through Edom and the nations and Israel, because those are the three entities that we see in the book of Obadiah, and how God is going to be doing that, we know that God has a plan. He has a purpose. It stands. The way that he chooses is totally fair, and he is righteous in his judgments. Huh? Always. Always. Um, when, when you get all the way down, one of the things I do want to bring out before we close it up here is to put a couple of points in here. What we see then is where Edom falls in or where um, they have put Obadiah. And this is a guess, you guys. because And the way that they're guessing this through is by events that are going on and things that have happened and what God has prophesied about them. And then they see who did what where, and then that's how they kind of fit him in here. Uh, not much is known, known about Obadiah, so I'm going to put a question mark. He's somewhere in this area. They gave him on my map uh, 841 to 825, followed by Joel, which we will start next week, and he begins at 825 and runs to 809. So these two are running right in here, and they're right here on the timeline. So where we stopped at the end of series three is where we pick up with Obadiah and Joel, and that's where we're plugging them in here. And what was interesting to me was back here with Jehoshaphat in 1 Kings 22, which we've already done, we see that there's a statement about Edom there, and it says there was no king in Edom at that time. Now what does that tell you? If it says there's no king in Edom, what? Pardon? Um, no, because Edom is there, but they have no king. So someone else is their king, right? So basically it's saying they're underneath the rule of Israel in this timeline, okay? So there's no king 
No king in Israel 